Okay, shalom for those of you following me in the first recording. I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. I don't know why the recording just um, just shut off. So we'll start over so we can have one recording. Also, I'm posting right now in the um, in the comments a a link to the entire lecture in written form um, and typed up form so that so that you can continue um reading if you wish later on the entire lecture okay so let's start all over again the title is go to you traveling life's journey this Victoria portion begins with god telling abraham lech lecha go to you and um it's about traveling life's journey so let's first start with the modern day issue because everything kabbalistic has to have a practical implication in our modern day life otherwise why would we be studying mysticism? Mysticism for itself isn't a, an ends. The ends is to actually change how we live our lives, how we treat others, how we behave in our service to God. So what is the modern-day issue? I'll start with talking about the book, the classical book called The Alchemist. The Alchemist is a novel um, by a Brazilian author, Paulo Coelho, uh, that was published first in 1988, originally written in Portuguese. It became widely translated a widely translated international bestseller. Now, the, the overall theme of the story is about a shepherd boy who is living in one continent, and he has a dream that there is a uh, treasure hidden across the world, across the globe, in Egypt, in the pyramids of Egypt. And uh, he uh, sets out to go get that uh, treasure. And it documents his whole journey and how he meets with someone else. And uh, from, and anyway, the long story short is he gets finally to the pyramids in Egypt and he's about to start digging only to find out that the treasure is truly better buried back across the globe exactly where he was when he had that dream. Now, I'm going to suggest the reason why this story became so classical is because it's a pertinent message for each and every one of us each and every one of us is always looking to go ahead and find our treasures outside of us rather than realizing that the treasure that God gave me to survive my life and to prosper in my life is buried within nowhere but me. And thus, this Torah portion, God says, Lech Lecha, go to you. If you want to know where your treasure is buried, if you want to know where everything you're going to need for life's journey exists, it's lech lecha, go to you, it's within you. Stop looking on the outside, stop looking at the inside. That is the deeper message of this week's Torah portion, lech lecha, and we need to fully understand it. And this class, this lecture is built upon a mimer, a mystical teaching of the Rebbe, delivered on this Shabbos in 1965, in which the Rebbe, goes into the deeper and then the more practical dimensions of this opening verse. Lech lecha, go to you from your land and from your birthplace and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So, let's get some introductions here. Introduction number one. Abraham, as a first rule, is commanded by God to go forth into the world to gather, refine, and elevate the godly sparks that lie hidden within the world, transforming the world from a lawless jungle into the true, desirable garden of God. Now, our sages question the first two words of this commandment. 
The first two words of the commandment is lech lecha. Lech means go. Lecha literally means to you. Now, what does that mean, go to you? Rashi picks up on this and immediately explains to his students that to you doesn't mean literally to you. It means for your sake. And let me quote to you, Rashi. Rashi says, go to you for your benefit and for your good. And there I will make you into a great nation. But here you will not merit to have children. Moreover, I will make your character known in the world. So God is promising Abraham children, wealth, and fame. That's what it means. Lech lecha, go for your sake. And thus Rashi is explaining to us the deeper meaning of the, 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 the practical meaning of lech lecha. However, the question with this is, a man like Abraham, um, why would God have to promise him any rewards? Avram Avinu, Abraham is the one that said, I am but dust and ashes. Avram saw his entire life as nothing more of being a servant to God. For Avraham, the biggest and only reason to go forth, as God is telling him, is because God is telling him, not because of fame not because of any uh, wealth or any promise of children. God spoke, God said, thus he wants to do. So built on this question, we, could, we introduced the Al-Sheikh HaKadosh, a great Kabbalist, Rabbi Moshe Al-Sheikh, who lived about um, 500 years ago in the time of Bet Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Cairo and uh, Rizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria. He lived together with them in the city of Sfat in Israel. And he says, no, no, read it, read it literally. Lech, lecha, go to you. And he explains what that means is, go to the source and root of your soul, the way she exists above. Now to understand this, what this means, we're going to introduce another medrash. And the medrash says as following. The medrash says that the soul, chamisha nikra, she has five names that she is called. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida. And actually, this is the reason why there's the custom when someone says Kaddish for the soul of a, of, of, a, of a loved one who passed on, so they light, as they lead the service, they light five candles. Because the verse says, Kiner Hashem Nishmat Adam, for the candle of God is the soul of man. Thus we refer to the soul as a candle, the most spiritual of the four elements, fire. And therefore we light five candles because we just learned that there's five dimensions of the soul. The five names aren't just five names to the soul. They're different dimensions of the soul, each one having its own name. Now, if you, many people don't know this, but actually you're not supposed to just line up five candles. You're supposed to put two separate of two and three. Why? Because these five dimensions of the soul actually are divided into two categories. There's the two infinite higher ones, and then there's the three finite lower ones. Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama are the lower levels of the soul, which the soul, that part of the soul descends to clothe itself within the body, the finite body, and comprises of the ten emanations and the three garments, the faculties of the soul in our body as we know them. Then there's the two higher, circular, infinite. Those two levels cannot descend and close itself, themselves within the finite body, within a finite world. Thus they encompass us from above. Now, our, we understand what Moshe Alshech is saying. Don't just live with the conscious mind 
of the lower three levels of the soul. Rather, God is telling us, Lech Lecha, go to you. Live with the higher dimensions of the soul, that which encompasses us from above, that which drives our subconscious mind. And thus, we now understand what God is telling Abraham. Lech, go, Lecha, to the true, infinite you, the soul, the way she encompasses you from above. Now, now that we understand this, we understand also that the verse doesn't say where to go from, it says where to go to also. And it says, to the land that I will show you. The land that I will show you refers to the infinite will of our infinite essence of our soul. And that's what God is telling Abraham. Don't just live on the lower dimensions of your being. Live on the ultimate essence, higher dimensions. Lech lecha, go to you. Okay, now, in order to understand this, we're going to have an introduction, which seemingly has nothing to do with this. I'd like to talk to you about the diaspora's two-day holiday. So in Israel, holidays are one day. In the diaspora, they're two days. Passover, we have two Seder nights, while in Israel, they only have one Seder night. So I want to share with you what the mystical dimension is, but we can never talk mystical before we talk practical. What is the historical point of having here two days and in Israel one day? Where did that come from on the practical, legal, historical level? So just that you know, the Jewish calendar, unlike the Gregorian calendar, does not work on, is not built upon the solar orbit, but is built upon the lunar orbit. That's why the Jewish calendar, actually the year depends on which year, it's a leap year or not, but normally we focus on 354 days because this, so this lunar orbit is 354 days, not 365 days. Now, the lunar orbit every month, the birth, the full cycle of the moon, is 29 days, 12 hours, and pika. Now, what happens is because the moon is the month is that 29 and a half days sometimes the birth of the new moon will appear on the night of the 30th and sometimes the night of the 31st which means that sometimes we have a 29 day month and sometimes we have a 30 day month in the Jewish calendar now because of that we don't know what day Rosh Chodesh will be the established first day of the new month so the courthouse would establish it. Now what's interesting about the Jewish courthouse establishing Rosh Chodesh is, even though the sages studied the astronomy and exactly calculations of where the moon is going to be and which direction and so forth and so on, nevertheless the law tells us that Rosh Chodesh was not declared, established by their calculations, but by the testimony of two people, two witnesses. For the verse says, Apishnayim Edim Yokum Dover, established facts in Jewish law is upon the testimony of two witnesses. Now, a little bit of history. So the Jewish the courthouse would want everyone to know immediately what day was Rosh Chodesh, what day is the new month starting. So the minute they would have the two witnesses come and it would be established, they would have an amazing system upon the mountaintops in Israel, carrying through the entire place where the Jewish people were living, and they would have torches waving, and one mountain would see the other mountain, would see the other mountain, and that's the way everyone knew immediately what, what day was Rosh Chodesh. 
Now, the Jewish people had a group amongst them which were called tzedukim. And these tzedukim, they did not believe in oral law. They did not believe in the rabbinical interpretation to the verses. For example, when it says that you shall wear your tefillin on your hand and in between your eyes, we know that hand is here and between your eyes is here, meaning it's from here up, but between your eyes means not here and not here, but exactly here. They didn't like that interpretation. They actually put their tefillin right here, and this is called hand, while this is called arm. They would actually put their tefillin over here. And they were constantly fighting the oral law, the sages' interpretation to the written law. And therefore, they would go up on the mountaintops with torches on the wrong night to purposely confuse the Jewish people of knowing what day was Rosh Chodesh. Therefore, the courthouse stopped the system of torches and they would actually send out letters with emissaries to all the different communities to let them know when Rosh Chodesh was. Now, here's another important factor to understand. Out of the three primary biblical holidays of Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, Passover and Sukkot is on the 15th day of the Jewish month. Now, Shavuot wasn't a problem because Shavuot has to be 50 days after Passover. But Passover and Sukkot, you needed to know what was the 15th day of the month, which means you need to know what day was the first day of the month. Therefore, our sages made something very interesting. Anyone that lived within a 15-day distance radius from, from Jerusalem, the courthouse, they only had to keep one day. Because by the time the 15th day of the month came, they already found out which was the first day, and thus they would know which is the 15th day, and they would keep the holiday on the right day. Anyone that lived outside of that 15-day travel distance, they wouldn't find out when Rosh Chodesh was until after the holiday was supposed to start. Thus, they didn't know if the previous month was a 29-day month or a 30-day month. Thus, they didn't know if it was the 15th of the month or the 14th of the month. Therefore, they kept two days holiday to make sure that one of those two days was the 15th day of the month. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit more of the history and the facts. Eventually, the Hillel, the elder sage, he created a 19-year cycle calendar, and it's 19 years because every 19 years, the sun and the moon, they realign to exactly the way they were in the time of creation. So it just repeats itself, 19 years, 19 years, 19 years. And from the calendar that he made, we now know today without the witnesses what day is Rosh Chodesh, which is a 29-day month, which is a 30-day month. However, our sages say, Minhag avotenu biyodenu. We should carry, <clears throat> excuse me, we should carry the customs of our ancestors. Thus, those who lived within the 15-day distance from the courthouse and always their ancestors kept one day, till this very day they keep one day. While the Jewish people that live outside of the 15-day distance um, from the Jerusalem courthouse, they would have kept two days. Thus, we, till this very day, outside of that 15-day radius, we keep, distant radius, we keep two days holiday. That is the simple story of why there's two days. 
what we're going to find out in our lecture is the mystical dimension, the difference of the one-day holiday that's in Israel and the second-day holiday, which is exclusively to the diaspora. And now that we have all these introductions in place, let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So let's go ahead. Like I always do, let's make a list of the mystical concepts we're going to talk about so we can understand in the completion of where we're going to get to. Number one, I want to talk to you about the evolution of the infinite divine light. Number two, I want to talk to you about something called the 70 ministers. Number three, I want to talk to you about the journey from uh, below to above. And then I want to talk to you about the journey from above to below. And then I want to talk to you about the to you of the latter journey. Okay. So, the evolution of the divine light. Before we can understand the mystical, the, the, the mysticism of the difference between the one-day holiday in Israel and the second-day holiday of the diaspora, we're going to need to talk a little bit about creation to understand the Kabbalah, the mysticism of creation. Now, the process of creation, the way it's talking about in Kabbalah and Hasidus, is simply the process of going from the infinite to the finite. That is the process of creation. God created a finite universe which has a finite form, shape, and logical system of nature. Now, how did that come from the infinite, the definitiveness, the one that has no de definition, um, light? And thus, therefore, you'll find in Kabbalah and Hasidus, when we talk about creation of the universe, we're talking about contraction, concealment, and separation. And what we're talking about is how a finite ray comes through the contraction of the infinite light, the concealment of the infinite light, and it separates itself onto its own identity. That is the secret of creation. And thus, the, the, the word for in Hebrew for world is olam. Olam actually comes from a derivative of the word helem, which means concealment. Because the fact that the world has a definitive form and shape, it has to be through the process of concealment on that which is infinite, with no form, with no shape. Now, when we talk about the worlds, I want to introduce to you the concept of the four worlds. <clears throat> We're taught in Kabbalah that there's four worlds, <clears throat> Atzilut, Bria, Yitzira, Asiya. We're now going to talk about each one of them very shortly, precisely, get to where we have to. Now, <clears throat> the way the worlds work is, the more you travel down the contraction, concealment, separation, the more what's going to happen is that you're going to have a coarser, a more egocentric identity because the light is getting, the divinity, the spirituality is getting smaller and the, therefore the off product is getting coarser. Now, the, in these four worlds, each world gets more and more coarse. Let's talk about this. The first world is Atzilut. The word Atzilut comes from the word Etzel, one of the definitions. Etzel means next to, nearby. And the reason why we say it's nearby is because this world, even though it is <clears throat> a world which we said means concealment, egocentric, nevertheless, it is the first of the four worlds, and thus it is the closest, it is nearby to the infinite light. 
Thus, even though it's a world concealment, nevertheless, it's absolute transparency, it's absolute unity, it's absolute divinity. This, <clears throat> this world of Atzilut is where the essence of every Jewish soul comes from. Now, when we talk about the godly soul, this world has no evil. For evil to exist, there has to be ego. This world is transparent. This world is unity. Thus, there is zero evil and impurity in this world. The second world is called Bria. Bria means creation. It's important to know that Nachmanides, in his commentary on the Torah, says that in the Holy Tongue Hebrew, only the word bara, bria, bara, created. Only that word has the definition of creating something out of nothing, ex nihilo. What that means is it is the creation of the simplicity of mass. What this tells me is on one hand, it already has its own identity. There's a separation. It is the mass of creation rather than just being extension of creator. However, this mass is in its absolute simplicity. Thus, there is an ego, but it's weak. There's simplicity. Therefore, in Kabbalah, we are taught that there is evil and impurity in the world of Bria. However, it is the minority. It is a very small ratio. The next world, the third world, is called Yitzira. Yitzira means formation, which means that not only is it a simplicity of mass, but now there is a much stronger ego drive of I am me. Me in my form, in my shape. Thus, in this world, we now even have the next level of ego. In this world, there is evil and impurity at a 50-50% ratio. Then we have the third world, and the third world, I'm sorry, the fourth and final world, which is the world called Asiya. Asiya means action. Asiya actually has two dimensions, the spiritual dimension and the corporal physical world as you and I know and see. Now, of this world, there is such a, a strong three-dimensional point of ego, narcissism, self-centeredness, that in this world, there is majority evil, and to quote our sages, Rishaim Govrimbo. In this world, the wicked are actually the ones that overpower and prosper. Now, I just want to put in one little thing. I told you that the souls come, the essence of the souls, all come from the holiest world of unity and transparency, which is the world of Atzilut. <laughs> However, the incubation of most souls, other than the few holy, saintly, and righteous, happens in the world of Bria. And thus, most souls live within the consciousness of I am. Not that strong of a formation, but definitely a simplicity of mass. While only the holy and righteous live in this world with the absolute transparency, humility, and unity of Atzilut. Now, with that being said, let us go ahead and talk about what goes on within each world itself. So each world itself has an infrastructure of the ten emanations. That's what is called ten emanations. What's important for us to know is 
that every emanation is made up of a light and a vessel. Now, what defines how spiritual the world is and how egocentric the world is will depend upon A, the strength and weakness of the light, B, the transparency or the opaqueness of the vessel. Each one of these four worlds, the light gets contracted and concealed and separated more, and the vessel gets more opaque, more coarse. Now, within each world itself, there is the evolution of the light and the vessel throughout each of the ten emanations. So the first one, which is the emanation of wisdom, is where the light is the strongest and the vessel is most transparent. Then it gets darker and darker and darker until we get to the tenth emanation, which is called kingship. Now what's important to know is that the, trans, the transferring, the, the giving of the light from the higher world to the lower world is when the tenth emanation, kingship of the higher world, becomes the supernal crown of the lower world. And that's how the divinity flows through the worlds. What this means to us is that the light of the world of Atsilut, unity, which is the source of life, the divinity light of the highest world, never shines into, directly into Asiyah, according to the system. Rather, the kingship of Atsilut becomes a supernal crown and brings the light into the world of Bria, and then the kingship of the world of Bria becomes the supernal crown of the third world, which is Yitzira, and then only the kingship of Yitzira becomes the supernal light and brings in the light, the supernal crown and brings in the light into our world of Asiya. Thus it's contraction, contraction, concealment, concealment, separation, separation. So this was important to know. Now why, why am I sharing all this with you? Because now we'll understand the difference between a working weekday and a holiday or a Shabbat. So what happens is on a regular weekday, because it's so contracted, the kingship into the kingship into the kingship into the kingship until it finally gets to us a finite darkened ray, that leaves for enough arrogance to be only self-centered work of the six workdays. What happens on Shabbat is when there is a greater light of Atzilut, the divine world, which shines into our world, thus the day becomes a holy day, thus it becomes prohibited to be focused on self-centered work, but rather on spirituality and divinity simply because there's been a shift in the divinity that's within our world. More divinity, thus less arrogance, thus it's less about me, 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 and becomes more about us, more about God. Thus Shabbat and a holiday is a holy day in which work is prohibited. Okay, one more introduction is still necessary for all of this to understand the one day in Israel, the two days in, in uh, diaspora, and that is called the 70 ministers, Ayin Sarim. Now, our sages take, uh, they teach us, they liken the existence of the Jewish people in the times of exile too, and you probably heard this before, a solitary sheep that finds itself surrounded by 70 wolves, okay? Why is there 70 wolves? 
And the answer is because the Torah speaks of 70 nations. Originally, other than the Jewish people, the rest of the human race was divided into 70 nations that lived in 70 different countries. Now, according to Kabbalah, each country, nation, other than Israel, receives its specific sustenance and everything that goes on in it through the ministering angel of that specific country. Thus we talk about in Rashi how the Jewish people saw the ministering angel of Egypt coming to attack them when they were waiting at the sea before the sea split. Because every nation has its spiritual dimension, which is one of 70 ministering angels. Now every, like I said, the sustenance that comes down to every nation and every country comes down through their ministering angel. However, look in the book of Deuteronomy, and in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to see that there's only one land which has this verse. And I read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12. A land the Lord your God looks after. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Thus, we're talking about the land of Israel does not go through a ministering angel, but rather goes directly, receives its sustenance directly from God. However, when Jewish people live in the diaspora, then they're not receiving directly. It's going rather through the ministering angels. Thus, we now understand what our sages say, When the Jews were exiled to Edom, Rome, Rome in the exile, God went with them. What it means is that their life force now was going with them. It means it had to go through the ministering angel of Rome and so far with each place. Okay? Thus, we're now understanding um, the difference. Now, the question here is about the second day of the holiday. So a holiday is a divinity force from Atzilut, the holiest. And we explained earlier that in the normal circumstances, the divinity light of Atzilut would never come directly into our world. Rather, it would go through the kingship of Atzilut, into the kingship of Briah, into the kingship of Yitzirah, into the kingship of our world. However, the holiday comes from, we just said, the light of Atzilut being at a greater level in our world. So in Israel, it's not an issue. A holiday is easy because Israel is directly from the eye of God. The eye of God refers to the world of Atzilut, the world of divinity, the world of unity and transparency. However, in the diaspora, how can we get a holiday if a holiday means that the light of Atzilut, the light of the divinity world, of the transparency world, is coming into our world. Thus, we now understand the amazing, amazing novelty of having a holiday, specifically the second day of a holiday, which is exclusive to the diaspora. The first day of the holiday comes to Israel and from Israel to the rest of the world. But the second day holiday doesn't come to Israel. Israel doesn't have a second day. And thus, if the mysticism of a holiday is that there is the higher level of atzilut coming directly into our world, you understand the novelty of that because that's not the way God created the world. God created the system that there should be contraction and concealments and separation from the higher world to the lower world to the lower world to the lower world. And yet for a holiday, there's a bypass system where the divinity comes directly from the highest world into this world. 
Now, we don't experience that directly and consciously. We just know it because the Torah tells it to us. This is a holiday. This day there's a different divinity level coming into the world. There's been a shift in the force. However, when the righteous people, they actually saw and experienced that Shabbat was just a different day. They're, they saw that there was a spiritual divinity shift in the universe. However, for us, we just know on a subconscious level that this exists. Now, the novelty here is that this can exist in the diaspora. Thus, the, the mystics give this unbelievable parable of a prince, the only son of a king, that was captured and imprisoned by the enemy. And then the joy that that prince has when it actually is able to break away and be free of the imprisonment. Now let's follow this. The prince is the godly soul. Imprisonment is that we're not receiving directly from the eye of God, from the world of Atzilut in Israel, but we are receiving it through the contractions, concealments, and separations of the 70 ministers is how we're getting our connection sustenance from God. Now that is called prison. The prince is in prison. Thus, when it comes to a holiday, there's the freeing of the prison, and all of a sudden, the eye of God, the very light of Atzilut, divinity of transparency and unity, is actually shining into the diaspora for us to have a second day holiday. Thus, we now understand why our sages tell us that the joy of a second day of the holiday is even greater than the joy of the first day. For it is the joy of a prince that's being freed from prison. And even though until now he was imprisoned under the 70 ministers, today, on this day of the holiday, he's receiving directly from his father's table, the eye of the king. Now, with this, we can now return back to Lech Lecha. What is that commandment that God told Abraham? But we need to understand, Abraham was outside of Israel, living with his father in Haran. God tells Abraham, go away from this outside of Israel and come to the land of Israel, to the land that I will show you. Thus we understand that the diaspora is the way the world is living off the kingship of the kingship of the kingship of the kingship, contractions, concealments, while in Israel there is the eye of the God, the world of Atzilut, is the revelation of where the soul is in its source. Thus we can understand what God is telling Abraham, Go to the source of your soul. Don't live under the 70 ministers so that only the lower levels of your soul goes through contractions under the ministers, under all this concealment. Rather, go to Israel where you can live directly under the eye of God in which you'll be receiving from the world of Atzilut, the world in which the essence source of your soul exists. That's what God is telling us. Now, let us go ahead and understand this journey. So first I want to tell you that the journey of the verse that you should go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house to the land that I will show you in Jewish mysticism actually refers to two journeys. One is called from below to above and the other one is called from above to below. Let's begin with the from below to above. He's going from the diaspora below to Israel above. And I want to dissect this verse phrase by phrase. From your land, land in Hebrew is Eretz, 
So our sages teach us that the reason why the land is called Eretz comes from the word Ratz. Ratz means to run. And why was it called that? It's because the, it, we were taught that the earth, when in the six days of creation, when God was telling the earth, give forth, and so forth and so on, it says Ratz, la sotretzon kono. He ran, the earth ran to do the will of his creator. Now, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, we connect the word ratz, run, to the word ratzon, which means will. Because when you run to do something, it shows that you have a will to do it. Thus, in metaphorically speaking, the dimension, the mystical dimension of Eretz, land, refers to ratzon, will. However, the verse says, go out of your land, which means your animalistic soul, egocentric, self-centered, driven ratzon. That is what we live with when we start out our lives. And thus God's telling us, go out of the I want and I don't want. Surrender to the will of God, not the I want, I don't want. This I'm okay with, this I'm not okay with. That's the first step of the journey of Ratzon. Go, go out. Now the second the, the phrase in the verse is, from your birthplace. What does it mean from your birthplace? So, so to understand this, Hasidus tells us that the strongest dominant experience of self is our emotions. But where is our emotions birthplace? Where is our emotions born from? It's born from our paradigm. The paradigm through which we see what is good, what is bad, will derive, will, will drive the I want, the I love, or I'm afraid. We all love that which makes us feel better, which extends our experience, and we all are afraid of and despise that which diminishes our being. Now the question is, what is the paradigm of being? What is the paradigm of growth, and what is the paradigm of diminishing? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? And thus, the egocentric paradigm of I know, I understand, this is the way I think it is, that paradigm has to be smashed. It's interesting, but in addiction recovery, there's a beautiful prayer called the set-aside prayer, and it goes like this. God, please help me set aside all that I think I know about you, about your will, and then it goes on to about the program. So the God is saying, go out of your birthplace. Go out of the I know, I understand, I think this is what it is. And be open-minded to understand a greater dimension of paradigm, a selfless rather than a self-centered paradigm of the universe of life and of, and of existence. The next phrase in the verse is, from your father's house. What is your father's house? That is the offspring of the intellect, which is the emotions, which is the I love this, I despise that. The self-centered, driven, I love and I despise, we need to leave. Lech, go out of your land, i.e. your will, I want, I don't want. Your birthplace, the I know, I understand, I think. And the father's house, the I love, the I despise. And when we can get out of all of that, where do we head to? We head to to the land that I, says God, I will show you. And what that is, is the infinite will of our essence, of our soul, the truly peace of God within us.
if we can leave the egocentric I, we can find the truer and deeper I. And this is the I want of the essence of our soul, the will of God housed within the essence of each and every one of our souls. That's the journey from below to above. Get out of the I, the capital I, 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 and go into the selfless, go into the divinity, go into God's will. Then there's another journey from above to below. And to understand this journey from above to below, I want to just say that when we have an amazing spiritual experience, we're left with paralysis, not with practicality. Whether it be standing at the holy western wall from a spiritual perspective, or whether it be standing at the Grand Canyon, Maimonides tells us we see the greatness of God in his Torah, i.e. the western wall, and in science, i.e. the Grand Canyon or something like that. You never feel the experience, you know, I got to change the way I'm living. You know, I got to start praying every morning and I got to start giving charity and I got to start studying Torah and I got to start doing mitzvot. No, you're just like lost. You're just lost and like, wow, wow. I am just a speck of a speck of a speck that was handmade by God. Look at how mighty and powerful, how awesome God is. Now, the problem with that paralysis is, that then we go away from the Grand Canyon or we come back from the Western Wall and we go back to our manipulative ways because there's no connection between the wow that I experience and the practical, I need to make a living. And thus the journey in this part of the journey is not from below to above, but rather from above to below. How do I take that infinite experience that I just standing in front of God and how do I bring that into my day-to-day -day mundane life and every the paradigm I have, the feelings I have, the will I have, and the thought, speech, and actions that I have. Thus the second journey is the other way around. It's bringing that infinite will, oneness, transparency, divinity of the essence of my soul into my animalistic soul's paradigm, into its feelings, into its thoughts, speech, and actions. So the journey is out of self to God and then bring the God into self so we can live a practical divine life. Little problem. The Al-Sheikh I told you said, that lech lecha, go to you, means literally go to the essence source of the soul. Now, the second journey is the contrary. It's not lech lecha. It's not go to the essence source up there. We said it's all about bringing the up there down here. So what would be the interpretation of the word lech lecha, go to you, according to the second journey? And the answer is very interesting. The answer is based on a teaching that says only that which is very high can come down very low. The reason why there's a spiritual paralysis is because that spiritual paralysis is stuck in being infinite and cannot express itself in the finite. Only that which is beyond infinite, not stuck in the infinite, can also express itself in the finite. And I'm going to share with you two metaphors that I learned in Hasidus. How do you know the strength of a torch? over a candle and the answer is by the furthest point of its light but one second the furthest point of its light is the weakest point of its light and thus we now see that only that which is truly high can travel truly low 
so too with it gives another example how do you know that the barrel is so overfilled to the point of bursting when the barrel is sealed and the answer is you can only tell by the little drops that get burst through the planks the seams of the planks of the barrel so that means that I can tell how great and filled the barrel is through the tiny drops once again only that which is truly high will extend itself to be able to affect the truly low thus the Al Sheikh HaKadosh is telling us you want to make a practical change in your life you want that your infinite spirituality should affect your practical behaviors you need to not just experience the infinite you need to experience the essence because only the essence which is the essence of both the infinite and the finite will allow you to express your infinite self in your finite doings. So if we only get to the wow part of our being, we're not going to be able to take that wow part and become the honest, good person we're meant to be practically. The spiritual person we're supposed to be practically. It's only by getting beyond the wow into the essence Lech lecha, to you, to your very essence. Your very essence doesn't make a difference if you're having a spiritual moment of wow or a practical moment of how can I help this person. The essence is the essence of everything you are and everything you do, from the infinite to the finite. Thus, the verse tells you, you want to go down into being who you're really meant to be? Lech lecha. Go first up to the deepest depths of who you are. And from the deepest depths of who you are, you can then express that in every single mundane thought, speech, and action, paradigm, and feeling, and will. So, this is what God is telling Abraham. To the land that I will show you. Go to the essence of your being. Now, here is one more thing interesting. The Rebbe points out, why does it say here to the land that I will show you? Well, when it comes to bringing Isaac onto the altar, the verse says to the land that I will tell you. Why here does it say to the land that I will show you? And the answer is because of what we just spoke about. The whole purpose of this journey is not the talk. It's the show. We want to be able to see and experience the essence of our soul in every one of our moments of life. In closing, excuse me, in closing, what is the challenge of us always looking on the outside for our treasures rather than on the inside? And the answer is because we have a challenge of knowing who we are. Who is my true self? Now, many would tell to you, will say, well, the true self is very simple. It's how, what I want, how I think, how I see things, how I feel things, what I think, say, and speak, and, and do. That's not true. Because until we crack through the outer crust of our being, what we want, our paradigms, our feelings, our thought, speech, and action, is driven by the animalistic soul, the egocentric driven, the self-centered. But that's not who we are. That's the outer crust of who we are. Within that is who we truly, truly, truly are. And that is our godly soul, the peace of God. We are in truth divine beings having human experiences, not human beings from time to time having divine experiences. 
And if I only want to live as a human being, then I'm only experiencing my animalistic soul. And then when I look at how I think and what I want and what I feel and what I say and what I do, I know to myself, oh, no, no, there ain't no treasures in that self-centeredness. Thus, I want to get out of myself and look for others to give me treasures. But if instead of going outside, I can stop and say, whoa, that is not the real me. That is the egocentric me that's so insecure, that's so, that's so confused, that never has certainty. But within me, there's a piece of God that doesn't feel insecure, that doesn't need to always protect itself, that doesn't need to have live in uncertainty. Let's go deeper. Lech lecha. Go to the you. There's something deeper to me and to you than our self-centeredness struggle of survival. And if we can see that there's something beyond the upper crust of who we are, we'll stop looking for treasures outside because we'll always find them inside where they truly are. Thank you.